Welcome to all of you. It's a cold night, and it's the dark part of the year. And so it's very appropriate that we should gather and pool our light resources. So I've been coming to this group. Actually, Howard Noodleman is the precursor of this group uh, leader. Howard passed the torch to Gill. <clears throat> we think of Gill as being here forever, and you know he has that quality to him. But actually, Howard was the focalizer of this group back in the late 80s and early 90s, and Gill was a participant. And Howard uh, was a um, not so much a teacher in the same sense as Gill, but he, w he would invite people into his living room. And it was a small group at that time. And then Howard got sick and because he had a chronic disease for quite a while and then died, uh, he passed the torch to Gill in about 1991. And many things have happened since then. It's wonderful to have been a part of this. And it's, um, it's been a, a journey which could not have been predicted. It's one of those things where if you were sitting in Howard Noodleman's living room back in 1988 and you saw five or six people who would uh, show up and just sit quietly and then talk a little afterwards and leave, uh, could you have envisioned that so many more people would be interested and drawn to this kind of a practice. Makes me think of the time 2,000 years ago when suddenly there was a, an, a sort of an electric light that happened. And uh, the Christian, Christian tradition tells us that rich very uh, knowledgeable people came from far away to find what was led, what they were led to by a light. Many of the religious traditions have light as a theme, particularly at this time of year. There's a wonderful exhibit at the Los Altos Museum where there's displays and write-ups about the traditions of Christianity, Buddhism, Islam, uh, Hinduism, Kwanzaa, all traditions that where light is key, especially at this time of year. Buddhism is kind of unique because the light of Buddhism isn't the external light. It isn't a, a star shining in the east or uh, a savior who comes <clears throat> to bring light to the world. But the light of Buddhism is the light that we each have ourselves if we make the very short journey from the level of our thinking down to the level of our heart. And the tradition of Buddhism, mind and heart are inseparable. Same word applies to both. 
in our Western life, we tend to spend a lot of time with mind, with thought, with concept. And so this time of year, I think it's particularly appropriate that we pause and settle. All the traditions are pausing and settling. And it's our tradition to find the illumination from ourselves. The Buddha taught many, many things. In fact, um, volumes and volumes have been written about things that he said and people uh, observed after what he said. There's a few themes that run through it all. And one of them is, do not follow what I say, said the Buddha, but follow yourself. If you'd like, listen to what I say, but test it in your own life. The true knowledge is that knowledge that you find within yourself. And he counseled very sternly, don't get attached to traditions or rituals or religions. You may find inspiration in traditions and rituals and religions, and that's fine. But be careful about being attached. So this evening, I want to celebrate the season of turning within and the season of light by talking a little bit about something that's been important in my life and others that I know about luminous moments, moments of illumination. One of my favorite teachers is Jack Cornfield. And in his book, that's, I think, very wonderfully and appropriately called uh, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry, he talks about what illumined people experience in their lives. And over his life, he's had a chance to meet many of the people that are called sages or uh, gifted ones, seers, uh, great teachers. And he's <clears throat> come to the conclusion that, yes, they do have a certain ecstasy in their lives, and there's a certain illumina- illumination, a luminous quality about their lives. But then they do the laundry. And that life is kind of like that. It's, it's kind of a dance between the illumined, luminous moment and getting the laundry done. So tonight I want to focus a little bit on luminous moments. Here's a luminous moment from Ann Hillman. She says, I did not know I was on a search for a passionate aliveness, 
I only knew I was lonely and lost and that something was drawing me deeper beneath the surface of my life in search of meaning. There was a hunger. I saw it in other people to touch those depths, to know that our lives are sacred, that our hearts are truly capable of love. It is a yearning to be all that I can be, a longing for what is real. I sat and I touched what felt so real. This is from her book, The Dancing Animal Woman. Ann Hillman is a writer. So to touch that quality, that longing, that clarity. I had a lot of fun thinking about this talk. I did some collecting of writings where people talk about luminous moments. Here's some advice from Basho. Do not seek to follow in the footsteps of the wise. Seek what they sought. So the luminous moments are what we think of as the the qualities, the magnetic qualities of teachers or of seers or of great mystics. The luminous moments. And it's good to remind ourselves that we have access to those luminous moments. And that in our lives, touching that sense of wonder and that sense of clarity is just as available as it was for somebody who lived long ago and went through amazing trials and is known to be miraculous. We have that same ability. Here's a luminous moment from Albert Schweitzer. He says, late on the third day, at the very moment when, at sunset, we were making our way through a herd of hippopotamuses, there flashed upon my mind, unforeseen and unsought, the phrase, reverence for life. So what is it for each of us, for Albert Schweitzer, the setting doesn't sound like it was that important, hippopotamuses and making their way along, they'd probably been doing that for a long time. But suddenly there flashed in his mind this sense that life was big, that there was a lot going on and that it was important to awaken, to really notice this. Bill gave me a 
sense of a luminous moment in our last newsletter. This is the Insight Meditation Center newsletter that just came out, dated January, February, March 2005. And Gil was talking in, in the lead article about ethical sensitivity. How ethics is a very useful part of our path. It's like a structure. It gives us the reinforcement that we need to avoid being lost in desire or lost in confusion. So ethical practice, the five precepts being one of our main examples of ethical practice. Not killing, not stealing, not lying, not using intoxicants, and not behaving inappropriately in a sexual way. So those are the five precepts that we traditionally take to reinforce us and to prop us up for ethical life. But then Gill says, um, abstaining from all of these unethical practices are important and yet in doing so we are given freedom and we give freedom from danger freedom from animosity freedom from oppression to limitless numbers of beings so that really captured me these practices give us a freedom because they prevent us from falling off our clear awareness, but they also allow us to give a freedom. So interesting to think about how to give freedom to somebody else. Living an ethical life. The freedom of our ethics allows other people to relax, to not be um, oppressed, not be worried about danger. So this is the season of getting and giving, getting freedom, getting freedom ourselves from doing that 12 inch journey or that short passage from rational thought to in-depth intuitive awareness. So getting freedom, but also giving freedom as we practice and as we get clear and as we uh, become more upright in our lives, we have the opportunity to give others freedom. This season is the time that It's a Wonderful Life gets played often. It's a Wonderful Life is a, a movie that has an interesting story. It was, uh, for many years, copyrighted. And then, for some reason, in, I think it was 1976, the copyright lapsed, 
and it became a public domain piece of creativity. And up until about 1976, it was kind of a small, little viewed movie. And then when it became public, more public, uh, it, it spread and it, people viewed it more and more until, um, I forget who it was, bought the um, copyright on it in the mid-90s. It was one of the great entertainment uh, businesses and uh, have taken it back over again. But it, it, the number of showings has kind of leveled off since then. But there was a great growth period. Uh, something in that movie, It's a Wonderful Life, that seems to really touch people, and it certainly does me. And so I want to read just a little bit about the part of the movie that I think is luminous. It's where the luminosity becomes a factor. It's the tale of George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart. George Bailey is the unsung, beloved hero of Bedford Falls. As a child, George was selfless, risking his own life and losing his hearing in one ear while he saved his brother from drowning. As an adult, he gave up his dreams of traveling the world and going to college to stay home and manage the Bailey Building and Loan Society after his father passed away. Throughout his life, George lived by a creed that always placed human need above riches, and as a result, his only wealth was in his friends and family. So we know that the film's villain was named Potter. And Mr. Potter tried to buy up everything in Bedford Falls and did some nasty things so that the savings and loan that George Bailey and his family managed actually was doing pretty well, but because of some skullduggery, it fell on hard times. And so during the hard times, George struggles to keep it alive and his vision is clear, but his ability to fulfill the vision lapses. At that point enters Clarence, George's lovable, humbly, bumbling guardian angel who has come to Bedford Falls to prove to George that his life is worth living. To defend his position, he grants George one wish to see what the world would be like if he had never been born. As he and George travel through the nightmarish alternate reality, they observe how much worse off many people would be. Mary, George's wife, ends up being a lonely spinster. George's brother, Harry, is dead. He's the one that needed to be saved from drowning. George's uncle Billy, who ran the savings and loan and was implicated in the loss of some money when Mr. the uh, 
Mr. Potter actually got it, ends up in an insane asylum. And Mr. Potter owns the entire town. So the scene, if you remember, is George standing on the edge of a bridge and a lot flashes before his eyes as he contemplates his own death. And so he has an opportunity to see what would happen if he didn't live and becomes illuminated or becomes uh, enlightened in the process. And he realizes that he really is valuable and that he can go on in spite of all of his difficulties. Here we are in the dark of the winter when our ancestors didn't have the conveniences and the comfort that we do. And the dark of the winter was the time when they were standing on that bridge wondering, are we going to make it another season? The light has waned. It's dark and cold. How will we find our way back? And I think we have, each of us, an inborn tendency to do this kind of assessment at this time of year. Where do we find the light that leads us on through the difficult times? There was an article that was published in a magazine called Details. It's a magazine for men, and it talks about all kinds of men things. And in this magazine, it says, Why Successful Young Men Commit Suicide. And the story tells about a number of people who were doing really quite well and were successful in many ways. They had some difficulties. Something set them off. And as they stood on the bridge like George Bailey did, they didn't make the decision that he did to stay with life. Suicide, it turns out, is the second greatest killer of people between the ages of 15 and 35 after accidents. Approximately one in 10,000 Americans kills themselves each year. It's a challenge that we all have and we, we all need to make our life fresh. We all have challenges. We all have losses. In, in the Buddhist tradition, the teaching is that there's nothing more universal in life than suffering. The unsatisfactoriness of life is something that you can count on. Just no. Don't expect that life is going to be satisfactory. There are um, ways to deal with that in the Buddhist tradition. And mindfulness, practicing mindfulness meditation, is what we do uh, most uniquely in this group. Practicing a meditation that allows us to contact that source within us that keeps us going through these dark times and these hard times. 
It's not our guardian angel like George Bailey had. We're kind of like in the Buddhist tradition, we're our own guardian angel. As we use meditative practice and mindfulness and we develop the skill of mindfulness, we're able to stand on the bridge, so to speak, figuratively, and assess uh, things just as they are and find actually an illumined source inside. The illumined source is ours as we let go of our attachments. So the teaching about suffering is not that we can avoid it, but that we have the resources to deal with it. And it's that that people that jump off the bridge and don't survive have forgotten. They've forgotten those luminous moments, those moments that even though they only happen once a year or five times in a lifetime, those moments are about what's really true and what's real and what is fundamental. And when we have those moments, we know that there is a meaning to life and that there is a depth and a a quality that makes it worth going through the tough times, the dark times. So I'll read one more from... This is from Allen Ginsberg. It's a little luminous moment. He says, What's this little brown insect walking, zigzag, across the sunny white page of Su Tung's Poe's poem? Fly away, tiny mite. Even your life is tender. I lift the book and blow you into the dazzling void. So, touched by a little insect walking on the the poems of a great poet and realizing that that life is a tender, precious life and blowing the insect into the dazzling void. A luminous moment involving a book and an insect, but an awareness about life, about how precious and um, worthwhile life is. So we have a tradition on Thursday nights, and that is to have some talking from uh, senior students such as myself And then to have a short time at the end to have some sharing from all of you. And so we're at that time. And so what I'd like to do is invite us to sit in silence for a few minutes. And then after I ring the bell, I'll invite us to talk about luminous moments. And I'll share one of mine, and then I'd like to have those of you that feel so moved to share 
something of a luminous moment of yours. And in that way, we'll pool our luminosity and in this one of the darkest nights of the year, we'll have some light. So just a couple moments of sitting. So this is a luminous moment that I had in New York City. I had uh, gone back there to visit my uncle, and I loved jazz. And so I went into New York City. I went to a club called the Five Spot, where my favorite, one of my favorite musicians was playing, Charlie Mingus, acoustic bass player. And uh, when I was in high school and college, I played the acoustic bass. And so I was sitting at a table right in front of the stage, and the great Charlie Mingus, big, humongous guy, was playing just in front of me. And it was just mesmerizing being there. And the uh, gentleman next to me um, stood up, and he had been drinking for too long, and was going to walk over to the restroom. And as he walked by my table, he tripped and spilled his drink. And the drink went on Charlie Minkus's bass. And it was dripping down the front of his string bass. And you could really see it because there were spotlights coming down. And so it, was, it, it looked like um, you know, um, colored liquid paint or something dripping down his bass. <laughs> and Mingus is in the middle of a great thing that he's doing. And he, he kind of looked down and he noticed what had happened. And he had this kind of moaning voice. He said, it's okay, man, no problem. And he kept going. And I thought, that's true creativity. <laughs> so that's my luminous moment that I'll share, and I would like to invite any of you to just give us a, give us a little insight into a luminous moment from your life. So who will lead us off? Yeah. Oh, and sorry, um, if everybody would say their name, then we'll learn one. Richard, thanks. sort of decided to go that way and one of the kids 
kids who was really wanting more of them that night. In fact, she wanted to open them all. She'd already gone through opening five packs and picking out all the favorite cards. And she was really getting upset over not being able to forget the rest of the cards. And to me, the luminous moment was explaining to her that she was creating an awful lot of this suffering that was going on with her. And usually when I try and say something that's wise or helpful, the kids just say, oh, go away. They don't want to hear it. But she got it, and she thought about it, and she realized, wow, I can be really happy that I got these, and there's more coming in the future. Or I can go on this tack that I was on and, and be miserable and create all of this turmoil. And for me, that moment of, of, of seeing her learn that she had the freedom to decide how she was going to feel about that situation, how to interpret it, was, was absolutely stunning and wonderful. Mm -hmm. and just instantly made up for an awful lot of moments when it, it hadn't worked. So, mm. so to me that was a, a real inspirational instance of, yeah, people do learn. Nice. Yeah, it's so wonderful, especially with your kids, to see that dawning. That, Holy cow, it is my life, and I can make some choice. Nice. Thanks. Thanks, Richard. And your name? And I'm Denise. Denise. Thanks. Um, actually, it was uh, pretty hilarious, but at the moment, it was pretty uh, <laughs> shook up. I, um, I love my angels. And um, that moment we do have as you're talking, we have our up moments and our down moments. And we feel stuck at times. And even though we have this faith and this belief that we're going on, we still have those dark moments where we need to take our heads you know, out of the, the hole and say, there is the light. Well, it was one of those evenings where I'm, you know, I'm a single mother and I have difficulties at times and it just seemed like I'm really stuck. It was all the muck. And at night I went to bed and I did my meditation and I said, I looked up to the sky and I said, SOS. <laughs> this is the time if you're going to be with me, show me that there is a God and I said, angels, I really need for you to come down tonight because I don't think I can make it anymore. And so I said, you know, I, I believe in divine justice and timing, but I really need you now. But I need to feel you. I need to hear you now. And uh, my parents live abroad, and we have 10 hours of difference. And sometimes people make mistakes when they call us early. But I went to bed. I fell asleep finally. Um, I cried myself to sleep, but two hours later, the phone rings, and every time, you know, when the phone rings, we're like, oh my God, did something happen to my parents or whatever? Well, you know, knowing it's Christmas, everyone is all excited, so I go, hello, and I hear this voice saying, I'm sending you the angels. <laughs> and I'm like, huh? What? What did you say? I'm sending you the angels. I, I dropped the phone and I shook my sister. She said, no, get up, get up. I said, something's going on. It was my mother who <laughs> lost my address. 
and um, it was God's way through my mother telling me the angels are with me and they're going to come to help me. But it, it was amazing. She said, I lost your address. I wanna she bought me angel ornaments for my trees. So that was that was a luminous moment of touching the light. Yeah. That was quite an event. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. Thanks, Peter. My name's Joel, and my visual uh, um, a couple years ago was hanging my clothes out in a sunny, beautiful morning in Menlo Park. The house I had to stay at because my house was being, my apartment was being renovated. And I was with my new granddaughter, one and a half years old. And there's two Labrador dogs and two cats. And in this beautiful backyard of flowers and trees, and somehow I was able to get a line up to hang my clothes up. A mouse came running through, and the black cat, Jamaica, started chasing the mouse and playing with the mouse. My granddaughter saw the cat chasing the mouse and started chasing the cat. <laughs> and it was just a uh, beautiful visual moment. The mouse ended up climbing up a lily stalk to get away from the cat that the cat couldn't get up to. And it was right next to the flower and just scared and shaking. My granddaughter was able to be at eye level with the mouse and see the mouse uh, on the list. It was just a nice memory, a nice moment in life. Mm. Yeah, thanks. The mouse got away. <laughs> so maybe just one more. One more, and then we'll close. Yes, please. My name is Jaris. Uh, uh, it's kind of like your story. I was on a uh, 
big rock concert. Uh, we call the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And uh, they finished playing one song. And the singer said, somebody in the audience just threw a full bottle of Jack Daniels whiskey that hit me in the face. And uh, it was a big stage. I, can, I didn't see it. But he said, to that person who threw the bottle, I just want to say, and he had this big pregnant pause, and I almost I was going I love you. <laughs> and I thought that was a, a wise thing. Hmm. Yeah, it must be so hard to be out on the stage and have something like that happen. What, what do you do? And Would that be an illuminating moment or an intoxicating moment? <laughs> <laughs> I like the illumination. In that case, the the ecstasy came before the laundry. Eh? <laughs> okay, well, we could we could go on and on. It'd be wonderful to hear more stories of illuminated, luminous moments. But we are at a time for a close, and so uh, what I'd like to have us do is just sit again, um, just quietly. And then I'll read one short thought just to leave us with, and then I'll ring the bell, and we'll be at an end. So I'll just sit for a few minutes. This is part of a poem by Mary Oliver. Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this. The fires and the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meeting none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes, to let it go, to let it go. So may the benefit of our gathering together this evening and our sharing of luminous moments and the traditions of the season of light, may these benefits spread and all beings know in themselves their own illumination, the illumination that doesn't depend on outer things and that's always available. And may we all be illumined clearly as we move to free ourselves and give freedom to others. <laughs>